Welcome to the 1CA Podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with the partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassos.org. I'll have those in the show notes. And a quick shout out to LC38 Brand. They're offering 10% off for 1CA podcast fans. The promo code is 1CA10. LC38 Brand has a little bit of everything for the international adventurer. So check out their website at lc38brand.com. I'll have the promo code and the address in the show notes. Hi, everyone. I'm Mariah Yeager, your host for today's SMA speaker session entitled China's Three Roads to Controlling Taiwan. Recently, I organized a panel discussion on Taiwan with the Joint Staff SMA Program, or Strategic Multilayer Assessment, which is kind of like a DOD think tank. They bring in people to present on their work. And I had reached out to Dan Blumenthal and Fred Kagan from the American Enterprise Institute and thought it would be a good deal to also include SMA. So Mariah is running the SMA portion, and I'm guiding the discussion. This is a two-part episode, so enjoy. Fred Kagan, a senior fellow and director of the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute, also known as AEI, um, and also Dan Blumenthal, senior fellow at AEI, who focuses on East Asian security issues and uh, Sino-American relations. Uh, so with that, I'd like to hand the floor over to Jack Gaines of the 1CA podcast, which is available on numerous podcast platforms. Um, but today, SMA has him. Um, so Jack, I'm going to hand the floor over to you. Okay. One thought that I have is when people are talking about this issue is how it applies. Your your paper is terrific and it really brings out all the issues and the strategic gaps that we are facing. How does DOD work with our partner agencies to focus on those? How do we target them? How do we shift the foreign policy dynamics so that we're actually addressing the gaps in policy so that not only are we doing military deterrence, but we're doing a better job of economic and political and influence deterrence to keep the PRC from having free run or exceptional run like they're doing in the Marshall Islands right now in the Marianas. So that's kind of the area that I would really encourage some focus on. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Uh, pleasure to be here and thanks so much for, for having me. So I've been working on China-Taiwan issues since 1997 when I started learning Chinese and living in China, it's, uh, 2001, working on the original $30 billion arms sales package that President George W. Bush agreed to sell to Taiwan at the same time that we were uh, really starting security cooperation with Taiwan, helping Taiwan fundamentally reform its defense establishment. People always forget, and I like to point out at the top of anything I say about Taiwan, that it is a very young democracy. 2000, 2001 was the first time uh, civilians were even allowed to serve in, in the Ministry of National Defense, still a time where civilians were trying to gain control uh, over what had been a party military that was transforming to a professional military. So, you know, I've been involved in this military-to-military relationship between the United States and Taiwan, the three-way relationship between China, Taiwan, and the United States for, for quite some time. 
And it's a good thing that more people are starting to pay attention in the last few years. But of course, it's also uh, because the dangers have grown so much to the island of Taiwan and its democracy and its autonomy. So Fred and I are engaged in a project that is doing a series of strategic planning and planning exercises that look at all kinds of ways that China is looking to end Taiwan's autonomy, not just through uh, full-scale war and invasion, amphibious invasion, as our uh, first paper discusses, that they have at least three different roads still to Taipei. Xi Jinping still believes he has other options besides starting a major war to take over Taiwan. And, and those include a pathway of coercion, which he's undertaking now at, at lower levels of intensity, as well as persuasion, not meaning that he's going to persuade the Taiwanese to accept unification, but persuade the Taiwanese that there's no other option but to sue for peace. And of course, there's compellence, which is invasion, occupation, but also other lower intensity uses of force that are ongoing right now. But we believe in our project, which we call the Coalition Defense of Taiwan, that Xi Jinping still has a number of options and that there's two centers of gravity for Beijing if you're a strategic planner in Beijing. The first is Taiwan politics. How do you affect Taiwan politics such that Taiwan gives up hope of long-term resistance? And the second is how do you break the U.S.-Taiwan link? And we believe China is working feverishly every day against those goals. So let me just say that we have moved into the next phase of our project. Fred can describe more in detail about how this project is run because it's methodologies he's used successfully in the past uh, with respect to Russia, Ukraine, with respect to some conflicts in the Middle East. We're about to conclude in the next few months our next phase, which has been a series of planning exercises which looks at, in real detail, Chinese courses of actions short of wars, economic, informational, kinetic uses of force that affect what the Chinese call the cognitive domain in Taiwan and in the United States. And really, we look in detail what China can do over the next four or five years to break Taiwan's will and to come up with a political arrangement that Taiwan has no choice but to accept and to break the U.S.-Taiwan uh, relationship. So we've, we've done that work. We're, we're finishing it up. We're briefing it in the next month or so and going to publish a report, hopefully by the end of the year. Our basic supposition is that Xi Jinping is not really facing any serious threat to his political stability. As he came out of the 20th Party Congress, he's so focused on this idea of comprehensive security, uh, has purged so many different opponents and enemies, has elevated uh, internal security organs like the Ministry of State Security and Ministry of Public Security and so forth, that his position politically is probably pretty safe. That doesn't mean that there is not any discontent. Of course, there's discontent. There's reports of party elders criticizing him. There's reports coming out of the Chinese diaspora about Xi's arrogance, uh, in their view, Xi's arrogance, Xi's missteps, view that he's taken on the United States too soon, that he's started a Cold War before China is ready, and so forth. These are criticisms inside of China. But his ability to control the system is still pretty solid, in our view, despite this political discontent. Another point of view that we have is that Xi Jinping is feeling quite confident about China's place in the world. So 
if you even look back to the 19th Party Congress five, six years ago, you'll see that Xi Jinping says, you know, it's a new era of geopolitics in which China is moving closer to center stage. Very confident that China will meet its modernization goals, not just its PLA modernization goals, but uh, its economic and technological modernization goals by mid-century, if not sooner, that it's on target, that China is in a position to contribute more, that China is contribute more to the world order. We take it as supplant the current world order with a Chinese world order, more preferable to the feeling confident, feeling that the United States is in terminal decline. This comes from Marxist-Leninist theory. Part of this comes from a reading of the United States over the past uh, 10 to 15 years, that there are more difficulties that China has to face in the short term because the United States is kind of like this old lion with a couple of final roars in it. It's not going to go quietly. And his last gasp is some of the pushback that China is seeing, which emphasizes that they're facing more containment in technological and economic terms. But basically that the United States is in terminal decline, that China is on the rise. And we see this confidence expressed in the way that Chinese leaders like Wang Yi and Xi Jinping have lectured Secretary of State Tony Blinken, made demands of them as they come to China, you know, and, and, and ask for confidence building measures. And we, we see the way uh, the Chinese make a number of demands, not building confidence, but say basically tell the United States, get out of our way. You know, history is not on your side. They use terms like that all the time. You know, this competition that you have, uh, that you keep talking about is not consistent with the world order as it is right now, not consistent with the current trends. So even with the internal difficulties that are objectively observable, there is no sign that Xi Jinping is is backing off from the course that he has put China on, which is to meet its modernization goals, its building of comprehensive national power, its essential leadership in his view of uh, Asia, if not the world. So where does this put Taiwan? You know, I think it's 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 our view that Taiwan is extremely important in China's grand strategic objectives, but it's not the prime uh, grand strategic objective. Leading the world order, supplanting the United States in comprehensive national power, building up comprehensive national power, building up initiatives like the Global Security Initiative, the Global Development Initiative, giving an alternative to the United States slowly eroding alliances, as we see in the South China Sea and the Philippines, and is a higher grand strategic objective. He absolutely has to get Taiwan back in order to meet the goals of national rejuvenation by 2049. But you cannot, if you're Xi Jinping, not deal with Taiwan, but he feels like he has some time and options to deal with it. There are many, many grand strategic objectives. Taiwan is certainly one of them. And Taiwan is part of a unification campaign of the kind that we saw with uh, with Hong Kong, of the kind that we saw with the cultural genocide executed in Tibet and the cultural and religious repression in Xinjiang. The last outstanding item, recapturing the great Chinese motherland, ideologically very important in terms of national reunification goals, in terms of national modernization goals. but other objectives can be reached in the interim before Taiwan comes back into the fold. And it's very important, and we stress this in the paper, that 
the work of bringing Taiwan back to the fold is everyday work. It's not the kind of dichotomy that we often talk about in Washington between, you know, one day there's peace and one day there's war. For China, uh, for the CCP, every day there are people assigned to get up and work on unification and to deter what they call independence and separatist activities. So this is entire offices, agencies, and party organs assigned just to work on a daily basis on unification. If there is an escalation to an invasion, be an escalation uh, of what's going on currently. We absolutely have to understand as a comprehensive coercion campaign. That is what's going on in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, you know, one thing we've tracked very carefully in our project is how China has changed the information space in Taiwan. So at the beginning of the Taiwan election cycle, it wasn't necessarily on favorable narrative ground for China. So the the idea of if you vote for the KMT, it would be a vote for unification. If you vote for the DPP, it's a vote for independence. China didn't necessarily like that narrative very much. So what they have done successfully is change that to if you vote for the DPP, you're voting for war. If you vote for the KMT, you're voting for peace. And obviously, politicians in Taiwan and, and lively democratic politics picked up on this. And the, the, the main narrative DPP is trying to be discredited is by saying that it is A, too close to the Americans, and B, too provocative. And a vote for the DPP is a vote for conflict. So this is gaining some traction. It's, it's not necessarily the case that, that this will gain uh, the KMT the election, nor is China going to say, you know, they won the day if the KMT does win the election. But it's an interesting change in the information environment. So DPP is equated with war. United States is equated with war. Chinese information and propaganda organs have successfully managed to take the U.S. and NATO support for Ukraine and basically say to the Taiwan people, do you want to be with the United States that has a Cold War mentality and leads nations into war, or do you want to stay on the side of peace? And it's successfully prosecuting that case, not necessarily in Taiwan, but creating enough doubt about U.S. motivations with respect to Taiwan to change the narrative you know, such that Taiwan citizens who are voting ha- have a little bit of doubt in their minds about what, what the United States' true motivations are if the United States is using Taiwan as some sort of pawn in a larger struggle. For now, uh, we believe that China finds that to be a satisfactory narrative as it plans out a greater coercive campaign. So China is very interested, uh, as we say in our paper, in uh, you know what is sometimes called cognitive domain operations, cognitive warfare. And Taiwan has picked up on this. So Taiwan uh, often complains to the United States about the fact that they're under cognitive attack. And what they mean is it's not this kind of idea of a pacifistic win without fighting. It's how do you use force and how do you threaten and intimidate not just kinetic military force, but uh, civilian fishing vessels and so forth, such that you're creating psychological and cognitive effects in the United States and uh, in Taiwan. So we take in our paper, for example, the reaction to the visit of Speaker Pelosi. The idea there was not that Speaker Pelosi was actually in any physical danger. The idea there was to sow doubt and create a debate, which they did in the United States, about whether she would be in physical danger, such that the United States thinks twice next time about doing things that it is 
well within its right under the Taiwan Relations Act and under the One China Policy to, to do. So the kind of debate we had back here about the safety of the Speaker of the House, when you really step back and think about it, it's highly unfortunate because this was not a break in precedent. This was not anything provocative. This was well within our rights and our obligations and so forth to do. But the fact that we, the United States, then had a debate about whether the next speaker is safe to go to Taiwan is exactly the kind of cognitive effect that the Chinese want to have. And Taiwan is quite debilitating because all of a sudden the superpower that's backing Taiwan is having internal debates whether their politicians are in danger and whether they can continue to operate at the kind of political relationship, which is so important for Taiwan's morale. So that's a, that's a perfect example of successful cognitive warfare in our point of view. The Chinese can keep doing things of that nature for the next five, six, seven years and really affect Taiwan's public opinion, really sow doubt in Taiwan's public mind about how far the United States will go to continue to support it. It's not that an amphibious invasion is not possible. Of course it's possible. The problem with an overfocus on an amphibious invasion is we miss this level of political warfare. We miss this level of information warfare. China can can win in the sense of getting Taiwan to come to heel without having to conduct an amphibious invasion. So if you keep eroding the link between the United States and Taiwan, you keep getting the United States to self-deter on economic activity, on political activity, on diplomatic activity, military activity. Over time, you create a situation where Taiwan just thinks it's hopeless. And the advantage that the Chinese have besides the the distance, the fact that Taiwan is separated by waters is useful as as adding to a deterrent if you're thinking about an amphibious invasion. But if you're you're thinking about Taiwan as, as being able to be psychologically and politically and economically isolated, it works against Taiwan. So we're looking very carefully, going through all kinds of scenarios where China doesn't even have to enact an entire naval blockade and can really interfere with Taiwan's economy, you know, both through uh, threats to uh, businesses that are doing business in Taiwan, as well as to all kinds of different ways to spec vessels and interfere with maritime shipping short of a blockade. We're exploring in depth all the details of these courses of action that China can take in what would be comprehensive campaign uh, over the course of four or five years to really make Taiwan lose confidence in itself, really damage the integrity of Taiwan's democracy, and really make Taiwan question you know, what the United States will do in certain scenarios, short of a, a full-on invasion. So l- let me stop there and let Fred say a few words. Fred, over to you. Thanks, Dan. So I'm not a China expert, and I certainly don't play one on TV. My background is in actually Russian and Soviet military history, which through a catastrophic failure of American grand strategy has become relevant once more. And I have spent a lot of time studying Iraq and sometime in Iraq and a lot of time studying Afghanistan and a lot of time in Afghanistan. And I'm now overseeing the Russia team at the Institute for the Study of War, which is covering the Ukraine war on a daily basis. There's some interesting things to say about lessons of the Ukraine war for Taiwan. If anyone's interested, go ahead and put questions in the chat and I'll get after them. Dan has customarily laid out in a masterful way how we see things going and what we're doing. So I'll confine myself to a few brief observations and actually do what Sarah told me not to do and basically pull a question out of the queue to start engaging. 
The methodology that we're using for this activity is we call planning exercise or PlanX, and it's the same methodology that I used in 2006 when I published a report that recommended the surge uh, strategy in Iraq. And uh, for those of you who have hung around the military enough, it's a modification of the military decision-making process that is commonly used in planning activities at various echelons. What Dan laid out are a lot of the conclusions from the early phases of that process, which starts with identifying both sides' objectives. And one of the things that I do want to highlight, Dan said this, and I just want to footstomp it, is that Taiwan is not the top objective for either the United States or China. It is a very important objective for both. But the Chinese will not design a strategy that is only and primarily aimed at winning Taiwan at the expense of other Chinese major objectives. And the United States must not design a counter strategy that defends Taiwan that does so at the expense of America's other objectives vis-a-vis China and in the regions around the world. And so one of the reasons why we undertook this project was to try to zoom out from what had seemed to us as a really excessively narrow focus on a single scenario of the cross-strait invasion to zoom out and say, well, wait a minute, why exactly are the Chinese doing this? And how would taking Taiwan nest with those objectives? And why exactly does the United States need to defend Taiwan? And how does that team nest into our larger objectives? That was the starting point for us to begin thinking about what our larger objectives in the region actually are, which is why we call it Coalition Defense of Taiwan Project. Because what we rapidly concluded is that Important as the defense of Taiwan per se is, and it is important, it's even more important because it is part of a larger effort that we believe the United States has to engage in to build and strengthen a coalition to provisionism and expansionism in the region. And so what implication does that have for DOD? Well, one implication is that we have to make very, very sure that any strategy, any course of action, any plan that we develop to defend Taiwan will net strengthen the coalition that we're building rather than net weaken it. And I would submit that it's not immediately obvious that any defense plan for Taiwan that we could come up with would strengthen the coalition. As an example, this isn't quite a straw man, although it's, I think this is no longer something that anyone is seriously talking about. There was a time when people were talking about the way to defend Taiwan is to pull all of our forces and assets as far away from the region as possible and rely on long-range standoff precision munitions to sink Chinese railroads as they approach the coast. That approach would have been very damaging to the coalition. I think it also would have been very damaging on Taiwan as well, because it would have signaled the U.S. withdrawal from the region and willingness to abandon partners, because however much you message that it's better for partners that we be further away from them, emotionally that really doesn't work very well. So again, that's basically a straw man at this point. I don't think anyone is seriously advocating that. But that was the kind of thing that we were seeing that made us say, wait a minute, we, we really need to think about what are the larger aims that we're pursuing in addition to the very important and valuable aim of, of helping Taiwan defend itself or defend Taiwan. The other thing that we became concerned about is that I have observed with my many years engagement with the US, U.S. national security establishment, we have a strong tendency to look at the highest end scenario, think about how we would win that, and then decide that everything else is a lesser included contingency. And that if as long as we can win the big game, we can win any game 
that is short of that. And the thing that became very clear to us is that that's simply not true here. The Chinese might or might not try to win without fighting, but we can definitely lose without fighting. And defeating, deterring, stopping a Chinese cognitive war campaign is not a lesser included task of a stop the Chinese invasion campaign. And it requires a deliberate plan, a deliberate course of action development, which we're working on right now, with specific identification of the very particular centers of gravity that the Chinese cognitive warfare campaign would have and how we can attack those. I don't want to, I don't want to lift the curtain yet because we're not quite ready to publish this, but we've identified a few important centers of gravity here that will not be affected by our preparations to defend the island against invasion. And in fact, one of the things that we need to be cognizant of is that there are ways in which we can try to defend Taiwan against invasion that actually advance the Chinese cognitive warfare campaign. Because the more successful the Chinese are at persuading the Taiwanese people and Americans and others that the U.S. is the warmonger, that the U.S. is the aggressor, that we are the ones who are fueling the crisis and so forth, every time we then either sell weapons to the Taiwanese or push the Taiwanese to purchase weapons or extend their military service period or do other things that can be presented as bellicose, important though those things might be for the defense of Taiwan, we have to recognize that they also advance a Chinese information operation that is part of a cognitive warfare campaign. And so that means that we have to engage that cognitive warfare campaign directly as well. Is that a DOD mission? Not primarily. For those of you in DOD who are asking what you can do about this, given that this is not primarily a DOD mission, I'm happy to come back and offer more specific recommendations. But the bottom line is you can ask questions of the civilian agencies that are actually responsible for American messaging to the world, for American diplomacy and so forth. And you can identify informational and diplomatic requirements and bring those into the interagency process and try to force an intelligent discussion in the interagency process about how to get after some of these things. DOD is not responsible for the answer, let alone for executing it, but it can pose the questions. And in the course of posing the questions and explaining how important the answers are for DOD operations, as well as for the larger mission, it can help drive a conversation. And I think that that's a very important and useful role that DOD uh, can play. We've already been speaking for a long time, and I do want to get to questions, so I will stop there. So we're splitting the episode there. We'll have the questions and answers in the second episodes. I hope you enjoyed it so far, and we will talk soon. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. And thank you again to LC38 Brand for offering 10% off to our listeners. We've been nominated for the People's Choice Awards, and this is a little extra treat for those who made it happen. Again, the code is 1CA10, and the site is lc38brand.com. And now, most importantly, to those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations, thank you all for what you're doing. This is Jack, your host, Stay tuned for more great episodes, 1CA Podcast.